engagement managers over each of these different programs. They might be an ERG leader, they might be the head of volunteering, they might be the employee giving manager, they might be a sustainability manager. They're going in and they're designing and publishing campaigns. Those campaigns are being seen by employees on the comms tools where they already are. Their email okay. inbox, Slack. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to the world. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Insert Human. And my very special guest, a person by the name of Susan Hunt-Stevens. And the easiest way to explain this is, it's actually maybe a confusing way to explain this. Susan and I have known each other for, what did we figure out? Like 29 years? Is that possible? 24 years. 24 years. But most importantly, we've had scrambled eggs outside of COVID pretty much every year for 24 years. And we actually re restarted that wonderful tradition this morning. So we, we, we come to the podcast or the show with full, full stomachs, full hearts, and, uh, and full, full brains that we want to, uh, we want to, uh, we want to delve into today. So Susan, in addition to that, um, started a company called WeSpire, which is a leading employee experience platform. And we're going to talk a lot about what they do, why they do it, how they do it, et cetera. But, but she's recognized as an expert in the field of designing for behavior change, which I really want to dig into, and has been named an EY Entrepreneur of the Year for New England, a Boston Business Journal Woman of Influence, and is on the Environmental Leader 100 list. Prior to that, she worked at the New York Times Company, uh, most recently as the SVP General Manager for Boston.com, and she and I actually worked together a little bit uh, during that time. She went to Tuck School of Business. Uh, she was a Tuck Scholar and also Wesleyan, great school, and is a graduate certificate in sustainable design from the Boston Architectural College. So Susan, thank you for joining me again this morning. Lovely it's so morning. great to be here. So I just, I just want to get, get the audience grounded on what WeSpire does, and as importantly, 
how you found your way into creating the business. Sure. The easiest thing to ground us in is that I've been working in digital since 1998. And in fact, the little known fact, um, I actually helped write the very first white paper on the internet on behavioral advertising and marketing, well, which is very funny. So well, I've been doing... I mean, now Technology. it's everything, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, pressing. Yeah. Press Isn't that funny? Um, it's It looks so old school because it's like in the New York Times font and things like that. And it was a call to action for a direct marketing piece uh, for people who needed advanced knowledge, not the digital advertising 101 guide that was also being put out. The... Um, and technology is really, really powerful for nudging people to do things. Uh, we've all been nudged on the internet to spend way too much time looking at pictures on Instagram or to purchase things or to connect with people, uh, you know, comment and all of that. My hypothesis was that these techniques, game mechanics, social mechanics, and all of that could be harnessed and put towards real life human behavior change. And we were seeing this emerge in things like RunKeeper, which was to help people run better or lose it to help people lose weight. My personal passion was sustainability and helping people be more sustainable and healthy. And I was sitting in grad school at the Boston Architectural College in a course on the LEED system for green building where builders get points and then earn badges um, if they make their building more sustainable. It was like, why isn't there something like this for people? Why isn't there some sort of app that would help people be more sustainable that has game mechanics and targeted content and activities we can take and positive reinforcement from the community, you know, recognition for sure, maybe rewards and uh, just had this idea. And it took several years of kind of gestating and talking about it and writing down things. But eventually I left uh, the New York Times company to found uh, found the company. And, and let me that's ask a question. Was the context back then corporate? Like did you, you saw mm -hmm. this need slash opportunity? Or, yeah. Like, so how did, Not how did... at all. Not at all. And when I speak about entrepreneurship, one of my uh, things I say is sometimes the best lesson in entrepreneurship is to listen to the calls you're getting, not the ones you're making. And so oh, we started consumer. Right. Better to yeah. be bought than sold or something. That's really good equivalent, <laughs> right? right? So, uh, you know, my background is all consumer. And so this was a consumer app and it was really targeted actually at, at women who had young children who wanted to have those children be healthier, to be in a world that, uh, you know, would, would be thriving uh, as their children became adults. And um, I felt like moms were really, really interested in this. There were a lot of online communities of moms that were really focused on, on being green and sustainable. And so it was kind of aimed right at, squarely at them. And uh, 18 months in, I almost shut it down because we were getting traction, but we just didn't have, you know, the viral coefficient is the tech term and marketing yeah. term to, for this to scale. Um, and for it to be the business model was affiliate and lead gen and sponsorship and advertising. And if you're not scaling, right, that, that doesn't, doesn't work. work. Right, right. So um, we got onto the Today Show uh, and I figured, well, if you're going to go out, go out after that. <laughs> you know, get on, try your best, see what happens. And that's when we started getting calls and they were from heads of sustainability for really forward thinking companies like seventh generation and um, mm. organic Valley and Eileen Fisher and things like that. And they asked if we had an enterprise version of this program. And if, by the third call, I was like, why? Oh, there seems to be a trend here. 
ha, yeah. I'm a big believer yeah. in three, you know, um, by the third one, start paying attention. By the so, third one, the answer was, of course we do. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Always a saleswoman. Right. Uh, well, so what we did is we, we actually, uh, Jeffrey Hollander, who was, um, you know, the founder of Seventh Generation, um, introduced us to a bunch of other CEOs of these types of companies. And we just asked the question and there was enough interest and demand. Um, and what they needed was so similar to what we did that we did sort of that classic scrappy MVP version of an enterprise, got them on it, did a pilot, ended up um, being much more successful in the workplace. And so, Ultimately, we've just decided from 2012 on to focus exclusively on engaging uh, employees through okay. their their workplace. Um, you know, we've dabbled in some citizen efforts. We've dabbled in some consumer efforts still just to see if there's there's traction there. But 98 percent of our business is um, is running sustainability yeah. programs for large global companies, although sustainability that's I think for me, the most exciting part has been actually the last five years. Um the definition of sustainability has really kind of morphed to include not just environmental programs, but inclusivity programs right. and social impact programs, right. and even in many clients, uh, well-being and resilience programs. Um, all so under it's like every form of sustainable, sustainable human, sustainable. Exactly, exactly, and and what drove yeah. this? Yeah, what drove this was in 2016 the um, real the refresh of the 2030 goals for the UN, um, the UN right, Sustainable the 17, Development 17, Goals. The SDGs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the SDGs, which cover on all these broad topics. And for the first time, the corporates were really involved and very vested in making big commitments towards these UN SDGs and saw these things as coming together. And then three to four years ago, the investor community got very behind what they referred to as ESG, you know, um, and uh, environment, social governance, investing. And so this confluence of, of you know, policy trends. For a global and corporate. And global and, and right. corporate and investor. And then employee and the employee activism over the last four years around everything from racial justice and equity to planet and climate to, you know, um, really uh, resilience in communities and, and mental health and well-being has really changed the landscape. So we found ourselves after 10 long, hard years of kind of yeah. being in the right place at the right time with a really good product um, because we've been working on it for 10 years. So, so I have to ask a quick, a quick question here because I've read a fair amount of this in the course of writing my book and uh, about this whole space, uh, ESG space and as you say, like there's clearly in the last several years a, a, a shift from you know global corporate investor employee person on the street caring more about this stuff. There's still there's still a voice out there that says, is it legit? Is the is the is the corporate effort sincere? Are they going to practice what they you know? So what's your what's your sort of take on? I, I'm assuming it is legit that there actually is. It's not just lip service to the cause. There actually is genuine concern on the part of corporate world to change their practices, change their way. Like, what's what's your 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 view on that? Uh, my, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical uh, about corporations uh, and 
and I work with them and, you know, there's a huge swath uh, if you were to do a sincerity index around this. Uh, And so the, you know, there are some who have literally baked it into their core strategic pillars and truly believe that they are going to win in their category by being the most sustainable, the most um, inclusive, the most just organization and that business is a force for good is is the future. And those are the businesses that are going to thrive. And anyone else who's not behaving that way will die. Um, that the consumer will vote with their feet, their employee will vote for with their investors feet. Investors will walk away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, investors yeah. will walk away and all of that. But those are the leaders. And and in 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 this world, it's still very, very early. And I think there's 70% are still trying to figure it out. You know, I, I, I know I need to do it. I'm getting asked these questions. I don't know how to answer it. I feel stupid in front of investors when they're asking us around our ESG strategy. So I'm going back to my company and being like, what's our ESG strategy? And the number of companies who are doing their first ever ESG materiality assessment right now is mind blowing. It is, you know, and that's just getting started. Um, what does that mean? A, a, a materiality assessment in terms so of what like happened, ROI or like, what, what is that? What is that? So what it is, is um, you look at your business through all the lenses of ESG to determine opportunity and risk. And where do you have the most material opportunity, given what you do around environment and social and governance issues? And where do you have the most risk around environment, social and governance issues? And it's a classic two by two where where you want to focus are on those issues where you have the greatest opportunity for to benefit by embracing those um, aspects, or you have the greatest chance of failing if you don't. So for example, if I'm a food company um, and I'm heavily reliant on coffee being able to grow for my product, like a big coffee chain, yep. you know, the climate risk associated with growing crops is going to be a material ESG issue, where for a tech company, the climate risk of crop growing isn't going to show up as a material a, a material issue for you, but um, DNI and talent around DNI in tech is likely to be a material issue. So every company is different as to what's material. Okay. And then what we do is say, okay, there's all these material issues, many of which your employees are passionate about and can make an impact on, and many of which they can't or maybe one or two can, like your employees are not going to go negotiate your virtual purchase power agreements to get you on hundred percent renewable Probably energy not. other than your procurement team. Right, right. But there are things that your employees are super passionate about that are really material to your business. And so how do you engage your employees around the innovation opportunities there around the programs, get, get them, you know, really changing um, the way the company works. I liken it to putting a different set of glasses on yeah. every person that walks in the door to see the business in a new way around those themes. And so you've got to educate people, you have to activate people, but adults learn by doing. So we can send our workers to every seminar in the world. They're not going to change their behavior. You've got to get them trying things and doing things for these lessons to okay. sink in. I just want to pause there and have the audience sit with what you just said. I, I've I fully subscribe to that statement and just, you know, a three-day seminar is not going to motivate, I don't want to paraphrase, but it's not going to motivate the behavior change you're after. You've got to, they've got to, one of my expressions is you don't really learn it until you feel it. And I think that's 
kind of what experiential learning does. We actually feel part of it. And that's when the brain, you know, registers well, and, what's being and we don't really stick with it until we get some sort of reward for right. it. And it doesn't have to be a financial reward. Um, somebody liking the fact I did something, you know, as simple as that little gesture is reinforces the value of doing it. You know, somebody high-fiving me, somebody, you know, standing up at a meeting and saying, hey, good job. So recognition is a very powerful motivator. You know, storytelling can be a very powerful motivator, feedback, all these things, you know, but rewards obviously matter too. And so, you know, how you create an environment where I learn, I try, and I get positive feedback because then I'm going to try more and I'm going to share with others and convince them to try. And then they'll try more and you get this network effect of good behavior. And that's what we measure and that's what we, what we catalyze it. And then we measure it and we can demonstrate that every person who shares what they've done to be more sustainable in this kind of context influences up to five other people to do it too. Well, behavior is contagious. Yeah. So the clients, the, the clients that Wespire works with, I have two parts of this question. One is they show up and have they done the materiality assessment and already kind of know where they want to go in that two by two? And then the question is, well, how exactly do we motivate employee engagement around this these particular topics? Is, is that a standard scenario? Yeah, so, so there's, there's really three clients. There's the really forward-thinking ones who have done the materiality assessment, know exactly what they accomplished. They might even have a goal around employee engagement. They may have a bonus they're wanting to me you know, measure against and administer, and we're the technology platform to deliver all that. But they've already thought it all out, and they just need something that can deliver it and measure it. A lot are, are in that we know what we want to do. We've just done the material assessment. We don't have any programs yet, or our programs might might be good. They might not be good. We need somebody to kind of help us sort out how we deliver against those new goals with what we have or what we don't have and help us create what we don't have. So we end up doing a decent amount of um, advisory, you know, uh, work in getting the programs designed and set up. We have 400 in our library. We can mix and match like Legos to what oh, really wow. helped deliver okay. it and things That's like okay. that like and curriculum. get those running. You develop a curriculum specific to the client. Is that? Yeah, basically uh, activities. Um, okay. We refer okay. to them always as activities. They could be a campaign. It could be a competition. It could be an idea board. It could be a set of events. It could be things that you bundle together based on their goals to help deliver that. And they can customize it and do all the things to make it really feel bespoke to them. Um, but it's delivering against, they had the goals they had kind of program pieces. You just put it together, added a few things and then direct it. And then there's people who haven't done that work. And, you know, we found ourselves sometimes working with people who haven't done that work. It doesn't often go well. So we're starting to encourage folks who really aren't there yet, you know, um, to work with either us or someone else on making sure they're really clear on their yeah. goals and developing a program and that you don't, Bring, don't bring in a technology and then develop the program to deliver it. Yeah. Develop the program, then bring in the technology to deliver it. And but we're helping yeah. more with program design. It's very, it's very reminiscent of, uh, I, I've done a fair amount of work over the last few years in the quote unquote digital transformation space. And one of the, one of the funny things about digital transformation is in most organizations, it fails. And the funny part is it fails because the organ, this is sort of research 
truth. The organization doesn't actually know what it is <laughs> and they don't know how to measure it. Mm-hmm. And, and so they show up wanting to buy digital transformation capacity in advance of having the answers to those two very basic questions. Yes. <laughs> Sounds a little familiar, you know, or similar to. It does. It does. Yeah. Well, and then we are, uh, we are, uh, a, you know, a technology platform. So we're part of a digital transformation process because candidly, there are companies that are doing things to help employees learn and, and get involved in sustainability, like a big Earth Day thing. And there's companies right. that have volunteering days of service and there's companies who have matching gifts and there's companies who have ERGs. They're just running it generally through Excel spreadsheets, you know, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, and these technologies that were never designed to actually catalyze behavior change and measure the impact of what people are doing so that you can report out your ESG impacts and measure what impact it's having on your culture, you know? Um, So some of these things exist and it reminds me, maybe it's because, you know, we both came out of marketing. It reminds me so much of marketing in the late nineties and two thousands where we had all these different kind of tools, didn't talk to each other, didn't sync to each other. We couldn't measure what we were doing. And then thanks to people who came in with campaign management technologies, you know, marketing technologies like HubSpot or Eloqua or Marketo, we kind of sorted out marketing, at least right. for, you know, a, a component of it. And then we could learn from each other's best practices and we could go in and get templates and all those kinds of things. We're just doing that for engaging employees in ESG. Okay. And so the, the platform, I'm trying to visualize, you know, I, I've obviously been all over your website, but if I'm, if I was a client organization, I, I, I hate to use this word. Is it a, do I think of it as a portal? Like how does that, how does your technology fit within the infrastructure of my company? Like how, how does an employee engage with it? Like right. what does it look like or feel Again, like? let's go back to the marketing technology. The real heavy users of WeSpire are the equivalent of marketing managers. They just are the engagement managers over each of these different programs. They might be an ERG leader. They might be the head of volunteering. They might be the employee giving manager. They might be a sustainability manager. They're going in and they're designing and publishing campaigns those campaigns are being seen by employees on the comms tools where they already are. Their email okay. inbox, Slack, you know, the intranet. So it's integrated into the It's integrated system. into okay. where okay. I already are. So it's just like as a consumer, I get advertising in my inbox. I get advertising on my phone. I get advertising in, you know, the elevator as I go into work. There's technologies behind that publish those out to those places. WeSpire is no different. We're publishing these activities out to the places where employees already are. Okay, okay. And then it, then when I see this thing, oh, you know, Chris signed up to volunteer at the Pine Street Inn on Saturday. I go, oh, that's really interesting. I'd love to join Chris with that. And I see that it's there on Teams in the volunteering channel. I just click on it, register. All of that is happening on WeSpire, but as an employee, I would never know. You know, you don't know that. That's, so that's brilliant. So it's, it's not- And I'm new... participating in Cox Impact or- you know, inspire me NRG or, you know, a program, this, this activity fits under some sort of corporate program name, you know, but we aspire is is a powered by model underneath it. And then the profile. So I'm, I'm listening to the show and I'm thinking I run a company of, you know, I don't run a global enterprise. Is this a global only proposition or or what is the profile of companies that you can help? 
Yeah. Most companies that we work with have 500 employees or more. Um, they are wanting to engage their employees first and foremost in these purpose-driven initiatives. It might be yeah. volunteering and giving. It might be well-being. It might be inclusive culture. It might be sustainability. It might be all four. Some So some companies are just getting started with one program. Some want the full portfolio of programs. And so you just begin to get these programs up and running either by migrating them from the places they already are onto WeSpire and doing the work through WeSpire or by starting a new program that's powered by WeSpire. Okay. Okay. Um, shifting gears, we, you mentioned earlier the importance of incentives, you know, learning, doing, being incentivized as critical to what WeSpire does and, and what any organization needs to do to, to move people, engage people. Any other, I mean, you've, you've been at it a while. Any other observations about this behavior change question? You know, we, at breakfast, we were talking about climate and, and I, I brought yeah. up the whole issue of sacrifice. Like, I don't know, just, just at a high, high level, what you've learned about how to, how to get people to do things differently. Like, yeah, the framework that really helped me understand what I'd been experiencing in digital behavioral marketing and advertising is actually BJ Fogg's framework out of Stanford's uh, Persuasive Technology Lab. And he uses a matrix where behavior change can only happen when two conditions are met. One is you've increased people's ability to do something. So you've understood what are the obstacles to me actually doing this behavior in some way, shape or form. But even once you've done that, you've got to have the motivation. So what's my motivation for doing it? And you've got to get, you know, to a place where I'm both able and motivated. But even once I get there, if you don't nudge me or trigger me to get me to actually do it at that time, um, I don't. And I think that has been the biggest lesson that we've learned is the importance of nudges and the importance of those triggers and capturing even those of us who are able to do things and motivated to do things to actually do them. And I, I joke, you know, even about myself, like I'm perfectly able to take the train downtown to my office. You know, I have lots of motivation. Lots broadly, you know, I would like us to be here a hundred years from now, you know, to choose a lower form yeah, of two of lovely kids that you'd like to have a life. Two lovely life. kids. I would love to have a planet. And yet, you know, despite those two things, if I don't have a mechanism that says something like the next D train arrives in 10 minutes and you can be downtown by this time, if you leave right now, my lizard brain thinks it's much more comfortable to hop in a car and drive <laughs> you know? because I don't know when that train is coming. And sometimes it takes me 20 minutes and sometimes it takes me 40 minutes and sometimes the train's not working. And so, so all of that gets in the way of what is enough ability and enough motivation, but I don't get the right information at the right time to actually get my butt on the train, you know? Um, right. And, and we default to what's easy walking out and hopping in that car you know, and so how do we trigger people at the right time in the right place to do those kinds of behaviors that actually make a difference? Now, are the triggers, this is really interesting. Are the triggers, like the example that you used, the trigger was a 
in a way, a control trigger, which is to say, listen, in 10 minutes, the, the train will be there. And then in 20 minutes, you'll be at the office. And so all of that concern about whether you, when the next train, like all of that sort of feeling of not, maybe not at control, but, but yeah, control, like are the triggers that you've learned through the platform around control, around more around incentive. We, you and I were talking at breakfast about, about due dates, about the problem with climate is, you know, we don't have a due date of if we don't solve this by June 14th, we'll all, we'll all be dead. <laughs> like how are, are, are they all of the above? Like triggers vary depending on circumstance. There are so triggers have content and, and in, in often, but they can also be visual cues and reminders. They can be, um, so they can be designed in a lot of different ways and therefore can have a lot of different substance. Uh, I'll give you another example of a nudge or a trigger that's not technology-based. If you place your running shoes by your bed at night, you are significantly more likely to go running the next morning than if you don't. Right. That those shoes being by your bed are the trigger and the nudge for the habit you really wanna have anyway. Or habit stacking is a really important thing where the trigger for doing one thing is doing another thing. So if you, you know, want to get better at, um, you know, uh, let's pick something like uh, flossing your teeth. You know, if you tie that trigger to, you know, every time I put my shoes on, the next thing I do is floss my teeth and you tie those two things together, you put your shoes on every day you'll start to floss more. And so they can be, there can be structural and systemic triggers, and then there can be informational triggers. The most powerful informational trigger is social. And it's, it's a trigger that is about other people like you or somebody, you know, is doing this thing. Mm. Um, and Cialdini did some really fascinating uh, tests around this uh, in the sustainability space where with door hangers, you know, he had a planet message, he had a cost savings message, and then he had a neighbor's message, you know, um, and, and what your neighbors did. And the one that significantly outperformed the other in terms of getting people to turn down their heat and turn up their AC was the one about neighbors and neighbors behavior. And so we are profoundly influenced by what the people around us doing. So we find and if we show people what others in the workforce are doing or somebody that they know has done or things like that, that's a very powerful motivator to getting people to do things. Is that, is that a form of herd mentality? <laughs> like, is that what's going on there? I mean, it gets into we are social. We're social animals, first right. and foremost. Everything we do is, is really driven to connect and be with others. And it's a powerful motivator and we want to fit in and we want to be like others generally, especially at work, um, you know, where people are sort of more expected to conform to a culture or a tribe. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, using the power of social mechanics is very, you know, to get people to change is actually very powerful and yeah. it works. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, the purpose word. And in, as an observer of, of the world, you know, and I actually was reading a McKinsey study a couple of days ago about purpose and this funny sort of uh, reveal of the study is that the executives and companies are all hep hepped up on purpose, but 
the employees of those same companies feel like there's a disconnect between the declaration. This is kind of like that, what we were talking about earlier. I guess my question for you is, if I were a, if I were running a company that was purposeless, <laughs> like I, we don't have a purpose. You know, our purpose is to make money. How does an organ? How would you advise an organization to find purpose? Like, I know that's like a maybe a wacky question, but no, it's a really profound question that a lot of companies are asking right now, and I think there's two comments I'm going to make about purpose-driven organizations and the purpose-driven business movement. One is that there's a line of thinking that says to be truly purpose-driven, you actually have to be aligning the business with some sort of significant environmental, social, or other problem that you are helping to solve, that it needs to be grounded in something that is what I would, I would say is impact oriented. There's another group of folks who say, you know, no, you can be purpose-driven in a way that is not grounded in social or environmental problems. And I don't think either is right. Google has gotten very, very far on a purpose of organizing the world's information. You know, it's not a social or environmental problem. It was a purpose. It's a very clear state of purpose. It's a problem you're solving. What I, what I would tell you though, is my experience in companies is when you have aligned your purpose with something that makes the world a better place, you know, usually around a, um, something that is some sort of big social environmental health, you know, type problem. It's really motivating to people and, and, you know, uh, and, and it's not easy. Um, and we've had the, the pleasure of working um, on and off with Unilever, who, you know, probably is the largest, one of the largest companies in the world, you know, full stop, who oriented their entire strategy around, uh, around purpose and very clear purpose and impact goals that were social goals and environmental goals and um, health and well-being goals for society. And the way they got there was actually going back to their founding story. And it turns out Unilever was founded in the middle of like the plague when, and hand-washing and an inventor realized if we could just get soap out to people to wash hands, we might be able to get rid of our, get rid of the plague. And that was their founding story, you know? And I think when you go back to a lot of companies and how they were actually founded Many were founded to solve a big problem that was facing society that people were concerned about. So my first advice is go back to your founding story. Why were you founded? Why did this person? Right. Why did you do it? You know, and you you will potentially find that big hairy problem that somebody really really wanted to solve at its core. Now, if you don't find something there, now you have to say where where what are our unique talents and gifts that if we put our minds to it could actually solve some sort of giant problem that's very tied into to what we do and i think if you work, can orient around that it can be very powerful as well so i am more of the 
if you're going to state a, a purpose, align that purpose with some big thing that needs solving in this world, um, whatever it is, and the, and, you know, and try to ground it through your culture. Right, right. And the magic will happen. Yeah, yeah. So that actually is a perfect segue to um, the big question. Um, we actually talked a little this, about this a little at breakfast. And I think at one point you referenced being, if I were czar of the world, uh, we were specifically talking about climate and, you know, and, and everything that's happening in the environment. And knowing everything that you now know, having run We Spire for um, 12 years or whatever it is, um, and, and dealing with behavior change at a very, call it intimate level, uh, and we 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 are faced, we as a species are now faced with this existential threat, and as we talked about at breakfast, you know the global organizations that exist, um, including the UN, um, don't appear to uh, necessarily have the answer, and then the nationalist governments are you know don't appear to have the answer. So uh, h- how do you how do you propose rallying? humankind to change its behaviors, modifies its ways, make the sacrifices to do what we need to do to uh, mitigate the, the, the worst version of this existential threat. <laughs> and you got five minutes. <laughs> well, uh, so I actually like the first version that you've had of this question a little bit better. <laughs> So um, do we think, do I think it's solvable? Yes. I I think it is solvable, but absolutely the technologies exist um, today. They are not adopted at scale. We are not investing enough money in them. Uh, What we, but, but the solution is there. What we lack is the will as a species broadly um, at all levels, individually, in our communities, in our companies, in our nations, you know, the global level. And is that because we just don't believe it's real? Like what, what is, what is getting in the way of will? Uh, Literally, I think it's our fundamental human biology and the way we're wired. We are wired for fight or flight of an instant immediate threat that is right in front of us. You know, the water, the water lapping at our shoes might do it. The bear that's chasing us, you right. know, we're going right. to, you know, we, right. we're, we're, we're going to get away from the bear, you know, or the coyote or the coyotes are actually fine. Um, you know, but the, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get away. To see it or feel it. it has, and it has to be immediate. It has to be, we are wired for an immediate threat. We are not wired for for a threat that is a future threat that is largely invisible. So you cannot see or feel greenhouse gas emissions right. in, you know, um, and the problems that it are, is causing are today, but they're for many of us, not immediate and not every day. Now tell that to our friends in California who are dealing with wildfires all the time. They're like, it's immediate and it's here and it's now. But the problem is, to fix the problem with California wire, uh, wildfires, you have to get the whole planet to change right. their behavior. Right. And behavior change is really, really hard. And I actually think, and you know, I would put, put even WeSpire into this um, group, 
that what I've learned to appreciate over the last 10 years is we've, we've made it too hard by offering too many choices of what to do about the problem. Hmm. And I think like paradox of choice stuff where there's like, we're just paralyzed because what, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, you know, and all of this. And, and if we really boiled it down to one thing, like if I had to pick one thing for the world to rally behind and, and for different reasons, people might be drawn to this one thing. It would be getting ourselves off fossil fuels as fast as humanly possible. And that all incentives and all structures, policies, regulations, behaviors are about getting off fossils, you know, because that is ultimately right. the biggest thing we can do as individuals, as nations, and as a planet that starts to cool the planet. Again, it's stop burning fossil fuels. And by the way, that's not a debatable thing. That's the absolute truth, right? Like that's, right. yeah. Right. It's, but who doesn't want us to get off fossil fuels? Right. Some very powerful, very angry, <laughs> very scared individuals who hold a lot of power because they are the right. owners, producers, sellers right. of, of fossil fuels. And if- Including Vladimir Putin. You know, now that is actually- I, interestingly enough, Ukraine is awful. I mean, what is going on is just mind-bogglingly awful. I never thought we would actually see that kind of invasion at this part of history. And one of the things it is doing is it is catalyzing Europe at any rate to accelerate an energy transition they needed to be accelerating. Right. It's, we're going to go backwards before we go forward. It sure. has certainly distracted people and put climate down as number 14 on the list of 18 serious issues in this world, as opposed to being in the top one or two is where it belongs. You know, um, but, but I do think we are now seeing front and center in our world, you know, the, the problem with, with, you know, what Tom Friedman calls petro-dictatorships. Right. Right. You know, and if you want the world to be a better place, a more inclusive place, a healthier place, a more sustainable place, we've got to, you know, not only get off fossils for climate, but get off fossils for the regimes that do really, really terrible things to people yeah. to go away. Yeah. So that's a that's a that's a perfect final segue too, because I'm mindful of letting you go. Um, um, what. I always like to conclude with what's what one thing can the listener do? And I think, I think you just answered it, but like, what's your advice to the, you know, the thousands of people that listen to the show around the world? Like, what's the one thing we can do to, to contribute to the cause? Is it like we were talking about my Kate and I have a, you know, a little VW golf. Is it, is it give that gas guzzling thing up? Like, what can I, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you want us to do? What can we do? Yeah. So I think the answer is, is twofold. There's what can you do personally? And that is immediately call your utility and switch your residence to a form of clean energy. And that sounds easy, but it's not as easy 
in reality, depending on where you live and your right. energy provider and things like that. But the first thing you could do, because even if you can't get it, you raising your hand and say, I want it yeah. is going to be that consumer push that companies need to get this figured out. Yeah. You know, they need yeah. to see that citizens want clean energy in their homes right now, today, go get it and make it happen. By the way, for Massachusetts listeners, it is easy. So you know, it's really easy. So, okay. What's the second thing? So the other is to speak up in and use your voice at work, at the town council meetings. If you're involved in a, in a club or a community organization, we need a drumbeat of everyone saying the most impactful thing you do, the one thing you can do, the thing we need to focus on individually as a community, as a nation is getting off fossils. What do we need to do to make that happen? What do we need to do? What you know has to happen? Yeah. How do we accelerate yeah. transition and be the voice that influences others to make these changes? Yeah. You know, I just want to underscore the profundity of that idea of locking in on one thing. And it, and it very much relates to the work that I've done around the, U, the UN's SDG goals, the you know, SDGs, 17, there's 17 goals. And every time I read about them and review them and think about them, I, I think to myself, there's too many goals. They're all admirable. They're all completely legitimate. But when, you, when you're, it's like the paradox of Joyce thing again, it's like too much. And, and I think you're exactly right. If we can rally as a species around a one goal and the accomplishment of that one goal has profound derivative consequences on many aspects of, of life, planet, whatever, it makes perfect sense. Um, so last, last thing, how can the audience get in touch? I mean, obviously, wespire.com, but any other ways they could reach out, connect, get value? Are there yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I follow me on Twitter. I'm at Hunt Stevens. Um, and Wespire is, um, I'm Susan at Wespire and love hearing from people. That's great. And, and I think if you're in a company that's 500, don't be, you know, I, I think the, my fear is that people will think, well, it's like it's only the Unilevers of the world that should be doing this nope. stuff or can be doing this stuff. 500 people or above. There's, yeah. there's, there's a need. And if there's a need, there's an opportunity. Our smallest client has 50 employees. Um, you know, I think the, um, uh, you know, there's, I, I personally believe at some point in time, every company on this planet will want to have these programs. And when you want to do them well and measure the impact, you have to have a technology to deliver it. And, and I just to add, I, I, my view is the, the governing entities in our, in our, in our world, I'm not sure have the chops to get the job done. And I think corporate world has to continue to step up and if not lead the way, serve as an example. And if you think about the, the corporate world and the number of people it represents, you know, of the 8 billion people on the planet, most of them work, I don't know if most, but a lot of them work in corporations. So motivate your organization, you know, if they're not, and they trust you, you right. know, corporations, ironically, especially the CEO of each person's individual company and the leaders of each person's individual company is often the most trusted person in that employee's life relative right. to government or re relative to politician, you know, um, in their city or state or federal, you know, that, that 
you play a really powerful role as a trusted voice um, with your employees. And the other interesting part is it used to be that people thought corporations really needed to be neutral. Employees do not want their companies to be neutral. They just do. They want them to take a stand on, on the issues they care about. And yes, you know, issues can be polarizing, but I think if companies are clear, workforce is more around that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for, a, for being on the show, but B, for the work that you have done over the, the last 12 years. And to your team, you know, the entire WeSpire team, I mean, you're, you're leading the way on what is really the most important issue we face as a species. I mean, it truly is an existential issue. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for being you. And thank you for breakfast this morning. And thank you for <laughs> scrambled eggs for 24 Scrambled years. eggs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I Amen. think you and I are the only people that think that's really funny, but whatever. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. Bye, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.